Amen. Let's read together from Psalm 85, verses 8 and 9. Give me your nice loud voices this morning. I need your energy. Can we get that up? There we go. From Psalm 85, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Amen? Amen. Let's read from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Amen. Let me teach you a word. You probably all know it. Say this with me. Shalom. Shalom. Not peace. Shalom. Is it the same thing? Ah, that's a good question. Is peace and shalom the same thing? And is it, in fact, kind of where we're starting? When you think of peace, what do you think of? Oftentimes, it's easy, at least, to, to equate peace with a lack of violence. If we think about it for any longer than that, we'll understand we're probably a little short-sighted on how far-reaching peace is. What are the requirements for peace? But that's where it's mind, our mind goes. We start with this word shalom. Now, when you go to Israel, I know a few of you have, and you greet someone, what do you say? Shalom. shalom. And when you leave someone, what do you say? Shalom. shalom. So what is on your lips all day long? Shalom. Peace. And when we say peace, when we say shalom, we mean wholeness. We mean completeness. We mean all things right. No things out of place or out of order. May all be well with you. May you have peace, the presence of the Lord with you. The promise of God is peace. And the promise of God's peace is is very real and very present, and it's throughout Scripture, and it's throughout the history and the practice of the church. In Israel, you say, shalom, shalom. If you go to a church that's a little more liturgical than ours, we just greeted each other generically, but say you go to a Catholic or an Anglican church, what do you do in the time of greeting? Do any of you know? You pass the peace. You say, the peace of Christ be with you, and... It's getting a revival in the common lingo because now it's saying, may the force be with you and also with you. That's right. And so peace is in the day-to-day of the Jewish tradition. It's in the day-to-day of the Christian tradition. It's all throughout the scriptures. In fact, when Jesus first sends out his disciples, we read this story fairly often. Here's the Matthew 10 version. He sends out his disciples two by two, 70 of them. You know the story. He says, go to the towns that I plan to go to, preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick, right? And he says, when you go to a house to stay, because you're bringing nothing extra with you, let your peace rest on that house. And so in our day-to-days, it's peace. And in our goings, in our ministry, it starts with peace. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, the other famous 3.16. 
It says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with all of you. This is the closing of 2 Thessalonians, a book written to a people who are troubled. Peace, 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 peace. Why in the scriptures from the mouth of God is peace so important, so central? Well, let's ask ourselves, is it important to you? Right. I got to have a, 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 a meeting with a new friend this week, and he was deeply troubled, and I asked him, what do you need? Break down everything else, right? How are we feeling? What do you need? He said, man, I don't know, peace. And you feel that. I know you feel that. Because the absence of peace is everywhere, right? Right now, I look out at a people, and you are extremely kind. You are extremely patient and tender and long-suffering, and yet I know, looking into your eyes and knowing your stories, that you are a people desperate for peace. Right now, I look into a mirror, and I see someone who's pretty desperate for peace. We long for it. For almost everybody in the world, barring those who crave some sort of worldly glory, a la Troy, right? Stay and you'll find peace. Wife, go and you'll find glory. Except for those, peace is what we long for as the human race. We were actually thinking about Advent themes long ago, trying to come up with what do we want to talk about during this Christmas season. And Pastor Eric, bless him, was like, I've preached way too many Christmas sermons. I'm sick of them. Let's do something interesting, something difficult, something unique, something uh, challenging. And that was my response. Because what we need is peace. I don't want another challenging. I don't want another difficult. I don't want another confusing. I want something that feels like home again. And so he said, well, let's just be, we're just desperate for Christmas. Let's just talk about hope, peace, joy, and love. And find some resting in that. We want peace. We want familiar. We want to read these words from Psalm 85 from the Gospel of Luke. Let's read them again. Can I get Psalm 85 up again? Eight and nine. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Yes, Lord. And from Luke, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, all the angels filling the sky, appeared to the shepherds with the angel they had before seen. And they were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Amen and amen and amen. This is the good promise of God. Here's the problem. Those shepherds were the poorest, most depraved people of their society. With the announcement of peace, did they have peace? Jesus was born without a place to stay. He was laid in a manger intended for food for pigs, maybe cows. And then shortly after he was born, Herod, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, a false king who was ruling the land, declared a decree because he was afraid of someone to take his place. And what did he have done? He had all the infants to and under from Bethlehem slaughtered. Right? Jesus' family 
itself, Mary, Joseph, fled as refugees from violent oppression to Egypt. When Jesus started his ministry, he was announced by a man named John the Baptist. What happened to John? He was put in prison and he was beheaded on behalf of the Lord. And Jesus said, if you are not ashamed of me, I will not be ashamed of you. What happened to Jesus? We remembered it in the table. What happened to all the apostles, barring John? They were killed. Some were crucified upside down. Some were dragged behind chariots. Some were thrown into oil. Actually, John was killed eventually as well. What happened later, in the year 70 or 72, to the people of Israel? The temple was destroyed. They were scattered, the diaspora around the world. No home to call their own. Christians, under Rome, Domitian, Nero, killed, slaughtered, thrown into the Colosseum with the lions, with the tigers, with the women and the children. It has to be asked, right? Where peace is proclaimed, there's chaos. Is that not what we see throughout the scriptures? We see it now too. So if God promises peace in Psalm 85, and he does, right? He promises peace to his people. The angels announce peace on earth. So it has to be asked, is God a liar? Is God a liar? Is the word of God not true? If God promises peace, why is there so little peace? Are these words just pacifiers for us, distracting us from the cold, hard reality of the world? Or in this way, does the Bible contradict itself? Turn to Matthew chapter 10, right? Jesus says, the Son of God will come, peace on earth on whom his favor rests. And yet Jesus says this to his disciples just after he sends them out to those cities ahead of him to proclaim the kingdom, to share their peace with the houses that they go to. Jesus says to his disciples, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Does the Bible contradict itself? Is God a liar, or are we missing something? It's Christmas time. I really wish that I could just be like, peace, and all your problems would go away. It'd be great. With a simple word, resolve all of the conflict and issue and violence and suffering of the world. I do want to say this before we go any further, further, just in case some of you stop listening at home or have to go to the bathroom and leave. Jesus did come to bring peace, okay? <laughs> and even now, he does offer you peace, which you can receive, which you can celebrate, you can take, you can have it as a gift of the Holy Spirit to you. You can have peace. That is true. It's a gift from the giver of all good things, who loves you, who sees you, who knows you. And yet, we can't talk about peace today without talking about its opposite, which is chaos, we cannot talk about peace today without talking about chaos. Say this word with me. It's two words, actually, plus a conjunction. Tohu vavohu. 
One more time. Tohu vavohu. You all knew shalom. A few of you know this word. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Jesus is on a boat at one point, and there's a raging storm around him, and his disciples are terrified, and they wake him up, and he calms the storm. The uh, Israelites are leaving Egypt, and there's water in front of them that they can't escape through, and God parts it. When they're entering the promised land, he stops the Jordan River so that they can enter the promised land, because throughout the scriptures, water is representative of chaos, chaos. And Jesus himself has power over the chaos. And in Genesis 1, we have this phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. God was hovering over the waters. There's chaos everywhere. There's this formless emptiness. Say it again with me, tohu vavohu. It's kind of fun to say, sort of nice. Tohu vavohu, formless empty, but not just empty, it's chaos. It was described to me as, imagine like you take all of the hair off of a sheep and then just rub it around on the ground and try and pull it apart. It cannot be pulled apart. It's the Gordian knot, right? It is a untamable, it is a painful lack of order. Tohu vavohu. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Not Nothing like empty space that's calm, but nothing like chaos. And out of this comes the beginning. The problem is chaos. It's been the counterpoint to peace. God's word broke into it. I was trying to explain chaos to our kids because my son spilled some milk. It wasn't water, it was milk. Just last night. He had it. He had a lid on his cup. This boy is four years old. He's plenty capable of drinking milk. And he puts the cup to his mouth, and then he bites on the lid, and then he pulls with his hands. <laughs> Chaos! In the home. So naturally, we started talking about theology, right? And I tried to describe chaos to my children. What is chaos? They literally asked. I said, I don't remember what I said. I don't know if I'd want to repeat it. They said, what is chaos? And we tried to describe, well, what happens if you make a mess in your room and mom and dad don't help you clean it up? That's some chaos. What happens if you go out and play in the mud and you don't have running water to clean? Well, that is some chaos. And we like to think of chaos as these large, grand-scaled things, problems, issues in the world. But when you really start to break it down, if I tip this over, chaos just a little bit at a time. And if I didn't have Natalie after service pick this up for me, then, <laughs> then chaos would grow and grow and grow. The issue is that before God spoke order into the world, before God did the work, the hard work of creation, chaos had its way, and yet he spoke order into it. And where there was chaos, there was peace, except people chose the chaos again. And God put us in charge of the earth, did he not? If we read on in Genesis, we would hear that we were given dominion. We were told to take care of, to steward the earth. And so if we choose chaos, what happens? And if we continue to choose chaos, what happens? Chaos flourishes 
And the fabric that holds all things together in peace begins to unravel. And what was a beautiful, beautiful tapestry of creation now becomes tangled and messy and frustrating. Spilled milk everywhere. What do we do about it? That's the question. What do we do about chaos? And what does God do about chaos? So the problem's chaos. Here are some solutions that you've heard in your lifetime. And I'm going to give you false solutions. I'm just going to preface you with it. And you're going to be able to think of times where you've chosen them, and you're going to be able to think of times where maybe you haven't chosen them. But I need you to be aware of how tricky, how slippery the slope is when we choose some of these things as opposed to the peace of Christ. I heard just this week, I don't know when it was released, I heard just this week there was, and I actually want to use the word pastor for him, I would not consider him a pastor, not of God's flock, um, from a church or something that calls itself a church um, in one southern state. And uh, he was describing this election process and how frustrated he was um, by um, how he understands this election to have gone. And uh, quoting him, he said, those people should get what they deserve. The politicians, the scientists, um, the governors who aren't sharing the truth should be lined up and shot. It's what they deserve. I don't think any of you would say that. I think we can uniformly dismiss that as evil, as wicked, as cruel. And yet I see there a man whose life is full of chaos. And despite claiming Christ, he doesn't know what to do about it except use the tools of the world. And while you may not take it that far, I think if you start experiencing chaos and it instills in you fear instead of peace, you're moving that direction. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you are angry with your brother in your heart, you have already committed murder against him. If you lust after another, you have already committed adultery. And so we are going to be a people, I hope, who approach peace, who approach chaos with no semblance of chaos in our hearts. Because if we combat chaos with more chaos, as the world does, it's the only thing the world can do, we will only perpetuate chaos, continue to unravel. All right, here's how we answer chaos in the world. I want you to search your heart, understand if you think this way ever. Not that there's not some semblance of truth, because there always is in the lies of the devil. The first answer to chaos, wealth. We get her in a little slide up. We should have some uh, drop downs. There we go. Wealth. Think for a moment. Where's the chaos in your life? How would you solve it with money? Wealth is so tricky because it's so real and so valuable and we actually ought to be good stewards of our wealth. Um, <clears throat> we talk about this regularly in the church. And yet, <clears throat> if I'm over here, right, I've got a broken car, I get a car, right? Great, that's good. You should be generous, you should get a car. If I don't have a roof over my head, 
I would hope there would be a Christian who would find me to put a roof over my head. It's not about lacking generosity. It's not about not being good stewards. But it is about recognizing this thing. Herod, the one who stood over Jesus to slaughter him, was the wealthiest man in the world. Everything he ever wanted. Did he have peace? You say, well, I wouldn't be cruel. I wouldn't be cruel like Herod. Great. All right. You get all the wealth you want in the world, and then you die. What wins? Death wins. Okay. Well, that's so far away. We can still be faithful now. Okay. But even the concept of wealth. Wealth is measured against others. Is it not? And no matter what, if I start to seek peace through wealth, I'm going to find myself in competition with another. It's inevitable. Be faithful with your wealth. Steward your wealth well. Do not seek it out for peace. It cannot resolve the issues of chaos. Maybe you think it can. Well, okay. We could talk about it for a long time. But let's at least look at Jesus as our example. God announced peace on earth in this baby boy who had nothing. Is God a liar? No. Was peace present on earth in Jesus Christ? Yes. Did Jesus or his parents have any money? <laughs> no. We cannot rely on wealth or our means to solve the chaos in our life. Next one. Even harder. Strong relationships. I don't need money. I just need good people around me. True. You do need good people around you. You don't need money. Money's great. Good people are also great. At the beginning of his life, Jesus was born to a woman named Mary, to a father named Joseph. What had just happened to them? They were just banished from their town. <laughs> Right? There was a census that brought them to Bethlehem, but before that they were rejected, rejected because she was born pregnant. Now, <clears throat> that's not something that all of us are born into. We'd love good relationships. Honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. We should seek these good relationships. Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. When Jesus was talking about peace, was having a good relationship with your family, the solution to the chaos. I wish it was. I pray for you that you do have a good relationship with your family. But it doesn't take a terribly long history lesson to start to recognize that if we prioritize good, strong, loyal relationships with our families over the peace that Christ invites us to, we end up with this thing called tribalism, right? Where I become blind to the needs of others who are outside of my family circle. Tribalism turns eventually to nationalism, which turns to World War I. Now you're like, wow, what a leap. Correct. <laughs> Huge leap. And yet it happens in little ways as we neglect our neighbors, 
as we neglect foreigners in favor of those family members who we think we need to have these super strong relationships in order to have peace with or peace in the world with. And again, I'll say it again. Be faithful with your money. Be faithful with your family. Honor your father and mother. Love your children. Raise them in the ways that they need to go. Do not neglect the elderly who are a part of your family. And yet know for Jesus in his life, all of his closest relationships were broken at the end. And he was the one walking the pathway of peace. Born into a community that neglected him. Crucified with disciples who abandoned him. The man of peace. So, is wealth our means of destroying chaos, of, compe- of de- defeating chaos in the world? No. Are strong relationships the means of defeating chaos in the world? Also, no. Let's get even more basic. When we are threatened, when chaos knocks on our door, we have two primary instincts, many of you know. We fight or we flight. And if we choose either of these options, we perpetuate the cycle. If I fight chaos with violence, I will only create more chaos. If I run from chaos, try and escape it, I am neglecting it for someone else to have to deal with. And I'm only saved by my speed, which will run out as chaos catches up to me. It's worth talking about for a lot longer, but we're going to move on. Violence is not the answer. Running away from your problems is not the answer. But we look to Jesus Christ, to his model as the one who is the first fruits of peace in the new creation. God showed neither flight nor fright uh, or nor fight in the coming of his son. How easy would it be for God to look at the chaos? the destruction, the pain, the hurt of the world, the way that humans mistreat each other and say, I want nothing to do with that and guard himself in heaven. How easy would it have been? And similarly, how easy would it have been for him to use violence, to destroy it, and yet he tried it. He tried it. He tried it. If we kept reading on in Genesis, you'd find a story. The whole earth was wicked, Every desire of man's heart was wicked, and so God sent a flood, and he destroyed it all. And as soon as Noah and his sons emerged from the boat, he got drunk. Sin returned. Didn't take any time. No time at all. And God saw it didn't work, and he said, I will not do this again. I will not flood the earth again. I will not deal with your sin in this way again. God's response to chaos, God says, shalom, I will show you the way of shalom. God says, peace, I will send the prince of peace. His response to chaos was not to toss money at it. It was not to just flatter and be kind. It was not to fight with his overpowering fist. It was not to hide and to run away, all the things that we like to choose. His response was to come as a baby, and in doing so, embrace all of the chaos of the world in himself and say, yet my love, my word will overcome it. 
Anyone who's loved a child knows that fighting and flighting doesn't work. Anyone who's loved a child knows that sending more money to them will not fix their chaos, right? Anyone who's loved a child knows that just approving of all that they do will not fix them. Anyone who's loved a child knows that if I want to love this child out of the chaos that they've created for themselves, I need to sit with them and take that chaos on my own body and trust that my love will overcome it in due time. There's none weaker than a baby. There's none poorer than a baby. So this is our call, to be like babies, to be like children of faith in the world. And like a baby, to offer ourselves up in faith to the Lord. Why is it so hard? It's so hard because it requires trust, because it requires going against our chaotic instincts. It's the difference between making peace and seeking peace. I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, he says, this is my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders. We can get this up on the screen. You can read along. To stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Can we get this up on the screen? We're going to be at verse 4. They will say, Where is this coming he promised, the second coming of Christ? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. What is his promise? Peace. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And this is where peace becomes kind of a controversial topic, I think. This last line again. Instead, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now before we read, you must understand in the last days scoffers will come. But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he was patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Who is the anyone? Who is the anyone? In this story, it's those who are scoffing. It's those who are mocking. It's those who are adding to the chaos. Not wanting anyone to perish. Are you the anyone who is perishing? No. Let's read the other famous 316. Let's recite it from our mind's eye. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not. Do you believe in the son of God? 
Do you believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Were you baptized into his name and into his life? Are you perishing? No. Why is it so hard to follow Jesus' example of peacemaking? Two reasons. One, we still think we're perishing. We still think chaos has a grip on our life. When I look at my bank account and I don't have enough money to pay the car repair bill, I think chaos has a grip on my life and that I'm perishing in some small way. Am I perishing? Let's get it extreme real quick. If I am a Christian in the early church and I am thrown into a coliseum with lions who are beginning to attack me, am I perishing? Is Caesar, who's sitting on the throne, laughing at me, perishing? Who is God being patient with? Caesar. God's act of peace in the world, his call of peace starts with the knowledge that God himself cannot be overcome, that his word itself overcomes chaos, not the other way around. We need to recognize that we are not perishing, but others are. If my instinct is to harm somebody because they are harming me, it's because I'm threatened by them because I think they can cause me to perish. If we keep reading in Matthew chapter 10, he says, Do not be afraid of those who can cause harm to the body, of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The key to peace is the knowledge that the word of the Lord overcomes chaos, that chaos does not overcome the world, and Christ is this example. The word of God, Jesus himself incarnate, is able to become the most fragile thing imaginable in the human race, a poor baby without a home out in the wilderness. In the midst of towering chaos, the Roman occupation of Israel, a false king who's violent and psychotic and Herod, and yet Christ still overcomes. The word of the Lord does not perish. Chaos wants to draw everything to it. Entropy, for you scientists out there, will have its way. Will it not? Except for the word of the Lord. If you want to be a peacemaker, we get to start with the understanding that we are not perishing and that others are. And if God was patient with me while I was perishing in his enemy so that I might be saved, because God longs for all to be saved, all not to perish, then I get to be a peacemaker in the world like Christ, knowing my fragility, knowing in the worldly sense just how powerful chaos is over me and yet not being afraid of it. Willing like God in Christ to actually embrace the chaos of the world instead of act violently against it, instead of trying to overcome it with money or with flattery or just running away from it. I can look chaos in the eye and I can say, you have no authority here. Do what you will. I will not perish. Entropy will have its way except. And you get to receive the except if you so choose. You get to overcome chaos if you so choose. But it requires looking at the babe 
in Genesis, chaos. Tohu vavohu, right? Waters. God speaks. And when he speaks, he forms light and darkness. He creates order. And he separates the heavens with this rakia, with this canopy, right, that holds everything in. And then he creates land between the seas. And then he creates plants, birds, and animals. And do you remember what he said to the birds and the animals and the plants? What's that? I heard it. It's good. He said it's good. What else did he say? Multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God established order in the midst of chaos, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply according to their kind. By his word, he broke the cycle of chaos, and by the multiplication of his word, the pattern of peace held hold against it. Jesus Christ is the seed that was planted in the ground. The earth was not finished being created until the plants and the animals multiplied. Creation was the process that we actually were invited from the very beginning to share into. When Jesus was announced into the world of chaos, he was announced as the bringer of peace. Was God a liar? Did the angels get it wrong? What did they say? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And in doing so, they acknowledged that Jesus himself was this way, this pathway of peace, the first fruits of peace. So I encourage you to follow him. I encourage you to follow him. And I think if we do it, we'll slowly but surely make peace. And I think if we follow Jesus in the way that God shared him with us, we'll not get what we want most of the time. I think it'll feel like chaos is overwhelming you. I think the message of peace during Christmas time is as complex and as difficult and as hard and as controversial and as difficult of a message as there is. And the call to receive the peace is the same call to be peacemakers because Jesus himself is the peace and the only way to have Christ is to follow him, to take his whole life upon you. And so peace is a challenge. Peace requires us to admit that there are cruel people in the world and yet I am willing to be patient with them. Can you be a peacemaker during Christmas time? And can you, in admitting to the Lord, you also are cruel. You also are a contributor to the chaos. Lord, take away these temptations from me to throw punches, to exploit, to flatter and to take advantage. And Lord, help me be like a babe with nothing before you like the disciples who are sent out without an extra pair of sandals, without an extra tunic or a staff, with nothing but the peace of the Lord, the power of the Spirit in them. So I'll give you this greeting, or this closing blessing that, that, that Paul gives in Thessalonians. If you want to open your, uh, your hands up to the Lord, close your eyes before him taking seriously that the way of Christ is so contrary to the ways that the world wants to teach peace to us. 
I ask this of the Lord. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Let's pray together. I'll invite the band up as well. Father, we apologize for the ways we've tried to take peace into our own hands. Father, we apologize for the ways we've tried to confuse um, our own personal uh, privileges and advantages and liberties with peace when your peace, wholeness, completeness, shalom can only be accomplished, Lord, when we humble ourselves before you and when we love the way you've loved us. God, I ask you to give us strength and endurance when we confront chaos with peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're gonna sing the doxology in closing. Joanne, can I get a D? Sing together. <laughs> Praise God from God of peace give you peace in all times and in all ways in your coming and in your going. The Lord is with you. Be confident, full of faith in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, bless you.